Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today again. This is the March 30th, 2016 edition pre-recorded for airing 7 p.m. on that date on AmericasWebRadio.com. And first of all, on tonight's podcast, we're going to talk about a disturbing study showing the increase in disorders associated with the use of marijuana. Now, this is not politically correct. Um, unfortunately, much to my chagrin, because I think marijuana is a toxic substance to the brain, and in my line of work, it's all about protecting and healing the brain. Uh, but uh, despite my feelings about it, the vast majority of people of any generation, doesn't matter if it's boomers, Gen Xers, or certainly millennials, think that marijuana is not all that harmful. It's okay. They're in favor uh, in the majority of legalizing it, which uh, I think would be a terrible idea. The health consequences are severe. and uh, But, you know, that's not the popular point of view. Um, the tide really is turning. Many more states are approving medical use, and several have already approved recreational use up to certain limits. Uh, so um, the tide is turning against those who have attitudes like myself, feel decidedly old school and backward in that regard. But nonetheless, um, it isn't about moral judgments. I want to emphasize that. It's absolutely not about moral judgments. And you notice I haven't even said anything about it being illegal or not. It's not about that either. Um, so it has nothing to do with the legal or moral judgments as far as what my attitude is about it. It has to do with the effect of this chemical on the brain, on the organ that is the brain. Well, in any case, let's take a look at this article. It says that 6 million Americans experienced a marijuana use disorder in the past year. Very few received treatment. Um, this is from Columbia University, this research. Uh, the percentage of Americans who reported using marijuana in the past year more than doubled from 2001-2002 to 2012-2013. And the increase in marijuana use disorders during that time was nearly as large, in other words, doubled, 
Uh, this new study was in the American Journal of Psychiatry. The research also showed that 2.5% of adults um, had experienced marijuana use disorder in the last year, while 6.3% had met the diagnostic criteria for the disorder at any point in their lives. The study was a collaboration between research scientists at Columbia University and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, otherwise known as NIAAA, which is part of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, this is a government health research agency. It's in Bethesda, Maryland. The study also found that marijuana use disorder is often associated with other substance use disorders, behavioral problems, and disability, and it largely goes untreated. The data were collected in the 2012-2013 wave of the NIAAA's National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions. And this was the largest um, ever data set conducted on the co-occurrence of alcohol use, drug use, and related psychiatric conditions. Over 36,000 United States adults were interviewed about alcohol, drug, and related psychiatric conditions. The data showed that marijuana use disorder is about twice as common among men than women, that younger age groups are much more likely to experience the disorder than people age 45 and older, and that those at the lowest income levels were at the highest risk. Now keep in mind, as we're going over all this, as disturbing as all these findings are, they're between three and four years old. So it's likely as not that uh, as attitudes have continued to become more uh, relaxed, uh, as it were, about marijuana use, uh, it's possible these numbers are even worse if we were to get current 2016 statistics. Now, um, Deborah Hassin, a uh, Ph.D. lead author and professor of epidemiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University, was on the work group responsible for making the changes in DSM-5 substance abuse diagnostic criteria, including marijuana use disorders. In a study published last year, Dr. Hassan reported that three out of 10 marijuana users experienced marijuana abuse or dependence in 2012-2013. This current study is the first national survey to use the diagnostic criteria from DSM-5. DSM stands for Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. This is sort of a, a compendium of psychiatric diagnoses. Uh, it defines what a psychiatric diagnosis is and gives very detailed and specific criteria to allow physicians to uh, make an accurate diagnosis. And in the current edition, the fifth edition, the older categories of 
what were called marijuana dependence and marijuana abuse were combined into a single disorder, in other words, marijuana use disorder. To be diagnosed with the disorder, individuals have to meet at least two of 11 symptoms that assess craving, withdrawal, lack of control over their use of it, and negative effects from their use of the drug on personal and professional responsibilities. And then the severity of the marijuana use disorder is rated as mild, moderate, or severe, depending on the number of symptoms. As the severity of marijuana use disorder increases, so does associated disability levels and frequency of marijuana use. Uh, Dr. Hassan was quoted as saying, an increasing number of American adults do not perceive marijuana use as harmful. While some can use marijuana without harms, other users do experience negative consequences, which can include mental and physical problems and impaired functioning. This paper helps provide information on some of those risks. Now, the researchers found that only about 7% of people with past-year marijuana use disorder receive any marijuana-specific treatment, and only about 14% of people with lifetime marijuana use disorder receive treatment. Now, I want to just stray from the article a minute, give you my own take on that. There are specific treatment programs for particular substances. There are alcohol detox and rehab programs. There are cocaine uh, treatment and rehabilitation programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous. There's heroin and painkiller uh, addiction treatment programs and 12-step meetings, Narcotics Anonymous. It's really hard to find treatment specifically geared for marijuana use disorders. Uh, yes, there is such a thing as PSA, Pot Smokers Anonymous, but those meetings are quite few and far between. Uh, compare that to Alcoholics Anonymous, which is literally ubiquitous um, anywhere on the planet practically and uh, at all times of the day, every day of the week. Um, so it, it's even if someone realized, you know, I've got a problem with marijuana, I need to do something about it, I need to get help, it's not so easy for them to find it. <clears throat> uh, according to Dr. George Kube, director of NIAAA, he said the new analysis complements previous population level studies conducted by the NIAAA that show Marijuana use can lead to harmful consequences for individuals and society. And uh, Dr. Nora Volko, uh, director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, uh, also was quoted for the article saying, These findings demonstrate that people with marijuana use disorder are vulnerable to other mental health disorders. This study emphasizes the need for such individuals to receive help through evidence-based treatments that address these co-occurring conditions. 
The study authors note the urgency of identifying and implementing effective prevention and treatment for marijuana use disorder and call for more research to understand the combined effects of marijuana and alcohol. And that's a very important point uh, because it's quite common for people to be abusing both substances simultaneously. Dr. Hassan said, we feel strongly that more public education about the dangers associated with marijuana use is imperative. This is especially critical since we are learning more about public beliefs that marijuana use is harmless. Well, she's got an excellent point. The public beliefs are out of step with a lot of medical evidence to the contrary. We'll continue this discussion after our first commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news, Dr. Scott Day. Right now, we're talking about marijuana use, marijuana use disorders, which are ever-growing in this country. Um, They doubled the 10-year period between 2002 and 2012. We can only speculate they've continued to rise since then. 
but yet the public are increasingly comfortable with marijuana use and uh, not swayed by the fact that a lot of medical authorities feel it is dangerous and harmful. Uh, the article is only focusing on those who may be diagnosed with a marijuana use disorder. And really all that has to happen for you to get a diagnosis like that is that uh, you have problems with it, uh, craving it, withdrawal symptoms when you stop using it, lack of control over your use, and negative effects on your personal and professional responsibilities. Uh, so it doesn't even address what negative consequences there are. Uh, marijuana is a hallucinogen. It uh, is purposefully inducing a psychotic state. Uh, that's what someone who is uh, using marijuana is doing. Um, they can be prone to paranoid delusions and hallucinations. Um, it's also toxic to the brain. Um, you know, and, and not to mention the other health consequences. It can cause cardiac arrhythmias, lung disease. So it's rather disturbing, I think, that public attitudes are becoming so much more relaxed to it. Uh, laws are being relaxed. Um, I, for one, just stand in wonderment at the whole thing, and eventually I think there are going to be negative consequences. Um Again, it's, it's really more about the relaxed attitude and the lack of concern over safety issues with the drug that bother me more so than any uh, moral or legal uh, aspect of the situation. Um, and I don't think it's, um, the, I don't buy the argument that some people say, well, uh, alcohol um, is more toxic. You know, in, in those who abuse it heavily and severely, uh, alcohol certainly is also very, very toxic to the brain and causes severe consequences. Um, but I think the difference is when used in moderation, it's perfectly safe. I don't know that you can say that about marijuana. Even in moderation, uh, I think it's arguable that it can be very dangerous. Well, clearly this is a debate that's uh, not going away anytime soon. I'm sure we'll have more to talk about as time goes on. Now, speaking of alcohol use, another one of my pet peeves over the last decade or so has been all the research touting the health benefits of alcohol. It uh, helps prevent heart attack and stroke. Um, it's uh, good for cardiac health, cardiovascular health. It uh, improves your longevity, all kinds of things. Cardiologists recommending a couple of glasses of red wine on a nightly basis. Um, the whole time as all of this has been touted in medical research, I have uh, sat back just incredulous at the lack of care to point out that some people cannot use alcohol in moderation. And um, so in that, in that case, 
I think it's irresponsible to just give these blanket recommendations uh, and, and not give the whole picture of what may go wrong when people drink alcohol. So finally, here is a study that I think pretty well successfully refutes all of that advice that's okay and actually a good and healthy thing to have a couple of drinks. A large review of all of these studies concludes that moderate drinking has no health benefits. Let me say that again. Moderate drinking, no health benefits. Uh, a glass of wine with dinner has long been touted as heart healthy, as I said, but the scientific evidence for this claim doesn't pass muster, according to a new analysis of past research. Researchers reviewed 87 studies that found a link between moderate drinking and longevity, and they found major problems with the way the studies were designed. Their analysis calls into question the idea that alcohol may be linked with a longer life. In fact, taken together, the data from all of these studies revealed that the people who end up the healthiest are those who barely drink at all. Now, before you think um, some uh, weirdo advocate that everybody should be a teetotaler, that's not what I'm saying at all. Um, if it's otherwise safe and appropriate for you to drink in moderation, which is up to one drink a day for a woman and up to two for a man, and I'll explain why those limits are different in a moment, then fine, go ahead and do it as long as you don't have a good reason why you shouldn't do that. Someone who suffers from depression shouldn't do that. Alcohol is a central nervous system depressant. So if you're prone to depression, you're under treatment for it, even moderate amounts of alcohol, even infrequently, are not a good idea for you. If you have liver or kidney disease, that's also a really good reason not to drink alcohol. And so on, I think you get the point. If there's a medical contraindication because you have a certain illness uh, that alcohol would worsen, or let's say you're on some medication that could result in a toxic interaction with alcohol, and by the way, that includes every psychiatric medication, uh, then if you're not in one of those categories, fine. Have a drink or two a day. But don't expect it to impart any health benefit. Do it because you enjoy it, but don't do it thinking that it's going to prevent heart attack or stroke, raise your HDL cholesterol or lower your LDL cholesterol, or lengthen your life. Now, <clears throat> we know that drinking too much is clearly bad for you. It kills about 100,000 people each year in the United States. But the other side of the question, that is whether there are benefits of drinking a little alcohol, has been harder to answer. For the past 20 years, many people have believed that moderate drinking may be good for your heart. But according to the scientists who did this study, the research doesn't actually back this up. In the new analysis, 
published on March 22nd in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs, the researchers combined information from previous studies that included a total of almost 4 million participants. That is a huge number of subjects when you're combining multiple studies, and therefore you're likely to get a good statistical analysis from such a large sample. And on top of that, some of the studies spanned decades of time. Over the course of these studies, about 370,000 of the study participants died. One major problem in most of these studies was that the researchers compared moderate drinkers, that is, people who have up to two drinks per day, to people who don't drink or abstainers without sufficiently accounting for the differences between these groups. For example, many abstainers stay away from alcohol because of existing health issues or because they had problems with excessive drinking in the past, right? So that would include people who are in stable long-term recovery from alcoholism or people who have, like I said, liver or kidney disease, what have you. Therefore, if moderate drinkers appear to have a health advantage, it could be because they are generally healthier than a lot of these abstainers, and not because they drink alcohol. Only 13 of the 87 studies they reviewed defined abstainers as people who had never drunk in their lifetime. So you have to be able to tease out why they're abstaining to be able to make a fair comparison. When the researchers that did this review accounted for these differences, moderate drinkers lost their apparent tendency to live healthier, longer lives. Compared with non-drinkers, so-called moderate drinkers had no survival advantage. It turned out that among the drinkers, the group that actually did best was the group the researchers called occasional drinkers. These people drank at most one drink every 10 days, which is too little alcohol to provide any health benefits. This finding highlights the idea that it is the other characteristics of these occasional and moderate drinkers that lead to their longer lives. For example, one such characteristic is that occasional and moderate drinkers are more likely than abstainers to belong to higher socioeconomic classes, a factor that was ignored in most studies. People who drink moderately actually are the most socially advantaged people and therefore more likely to lead healthier lives and be uh, longer uh, living. In other words, moderate drinking coincides with rather than causes or results in a healthier outcome. One of the biggest limitations in this area of research is that there have been no randomized uh, controlled studies. That would be the gold standard, the kind that would be used to evaluate a new pharmaceutical product. That would be kind of tough to do. You take a whole bunch of people, some of them 
drink moderately and some abstain, and then you follow them for a long period of time and see how long you live and how healthy they are, kind of difficult to do that. Uh, but, you know, if you could design that, then uh, obviously that would be definitive. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break here. We'll continue this discussion and have more mental health-related news when we come back. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Day, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're discussing a study that debunks the myth that moderate alcohol use provides health benefits. Now, uh, past studies have linked moderate drinking to a variety of health benefits, including implausible ones, such as a lower risk of deafness, and contradictory outcomes, such as a lower risk of liver cirrhosis. That's obviously preposterous. It's uh, Alcohol use is a major risk factor for cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, based on all of this previous research, either alcohol is a panacea, or moderate drinking is really a marker of something else. The limitations in the past studies could result from observational studies' tendency to take their data from large cohort studies primarily designed to investigate cancer or heart disease. 
These studies weren't really designed to study alcohol, so a lot of them include very limited questions about people's drinking, often collecting information about somebody's drinking at one point in time. That's why these reviews should be taken with a big grain of salt. Now, the new findings, which refute the idea that moderate drinking implies health benefits, don't mean that people shouldn't enjoy a glass of wine. Like I said, if there's no health contraindications, no medications that would clash, clash with it, fine, go ahead. But just don't drink it in the hope of achieving health benefits. So it would be a bad idea to say, oh, well, drinking alcohol is supposed to be good for your heart. It's supposed to keep you healthy. Let me do that. Uh, don't do it for that reason because it's really not true. Um, now, the authors of this research also made a, made a point to recommend that if people choose to drink, they stay within current uh, recommended guidelines for alcohol use. And again, those are that men have no more than two drinks a day, women no more than one drink a day. And uh, let me explain the reason for that difference. It's not that the people who come up with these limits are sexist and uh, let men drink more than women. It's a physiological reality that women have lower levels of an enzyme in their stomach, which is uh, the body's first line of attack in terms of metabolizing and breaking down alcohol so they're more susceptible to the effects of it than men are. Uh, so that's the only reason for the difference. I think some of it also has to do with that uh, women's bodies, um, for the most part, are smaller. There's a smaller uh, volume of uh, blood, and uh, they have different distribution of fat versus water in their body than men do. So I think that has to do with it as well. Regardless, the take-home message from this article, folks, is that there's no reason to say that moderate alcohol use uh, provides health benefits. Um, however, uh, I do want to point out that there's no reason to consider that moderate alcohol use, again, that's one drink a day for a woman, two for a man, has health dangers unless you have any medical condition that would dictate otherwise. That includes psychiatric illness. Likewise, uh, keep in mind adverse interactions between alcohol and medications, and that includes uh, literally every psychiatric medication. All right, next up on tonight's podcast. Researchers found a significant link between nightmares and suicidal behavior. Sleep problems have been identified as a risk factor for suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts. Now, <clears throat> when I first saw this article, I thought to myself, well, this is a very important advance because if research in this area uh, can be advanced, then maybe we wouldn't lose as many of our soldiers to suicide. Uh, as you know, uh, military mental health is something I pay a lot of attention to, and there's been disturbing trends in uh, the rates of suicide 
uh, among our military and veteran population much, much higher than in the civilian population. And uh, fortunately, finally, the military are starting to pay more attention to this and try to do something about it. Uh, but the link here is that nightmares are an extremely common symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which, of course, unfortunately, many of our servicemen and women suffer from. So the idea of investigating this link between nightmares and suicidal behavior definitely can save lives. Now, it turns out the nightmares may trigger specific types of negative cognitive thoughts, such as feelings of defeat, entrapment, and hopelessness, which reinforce suicidal thoughts and behaviors. By the way, this is certainly not exclusive to people who served in combat. Someone can have PTSD from an assault, a rape, um, robbery, fire, flood, uh, what ha- a car accident. The pathways between nightmares and suicidal behaviors appear to operate independent of comorbid insomnia and depression. That means insomnia and depression that occur together. This new study is the first to report that the relationship between nightmares and suicidal behaviors is partially mediated by a multi-step pathway via defeat, entrapment, and hopelessness. Uh, The results of the study show that suicidal thoughts, plans, or attempts were present in 62% of participants who experienced nightmares and only 20% of those without nightmares. Multiple analyses suggest that nightmares may act as a stressor in people with PTSD. The nightmares may trigger specific types of negative cognitive thoughts. That's what they're talking about with the defeat, entrapment, and hopelessness. And these thoughts reinforce the suicidal thoughts and behaviors. PTSD increases the risk of suicidal thoughts and behavior. And this study shows that nightmares, a hallmark symptom of PTSD, may be an important treatment target to reduce suicide risk. This study emphasizes the importance of specifically assessing and targeting nightmares within those individuals experiencing PTSD. In addition, monitoring and targeting levels of negative cognitive appraisals, such as the defeat, entrapment, and hopelessness feelings, may reduce suicidal thoughts and behaviors. The study results were published in the March 15th issue of the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine reports that nightmares are vivid, realistic, and disturbing dreams, typically involving threats to survival or security, which often evoke emotions of anxiety, fear, or terror. A nightmare disorder may occur when repeated nightmares cause distress or impairment in social or occupational functioning. Nightmares beginning within three months of a trauma are present in up to 80% of patients with PTSD. And 
These post-traumatic nightmares may persist throughout life. Data from the study, or for the study rather, were collected from 91 participants who had experienced traumatic events, 51 of whom met criteria for PTSD currently, and an additional 24 of whom reported a prior diagnosis of PTSD. Nightmares were measured by summing the frequency and intensity ratings of relevant items on the clinician-administered PTSD scale. Participants also completed questionnaire measures of suicidal behavior, hopelessness, defeat, and entrapment. Given the interactions between insomnia, PTSD, and suicide, a measure of insomnia was included as a covariate. Analysis was also conducted with and without those participants who also had depression. The authors suggest there are additional pathways underpinning the relationship between nightmares and suicide that should be identified through further research. I think what's important about this is, you know, well, it's one thing to identify this link. Um, so what do you do about it? Well, the fact is that we can do something about this. There are ways to address these nightmares, a number of different ways. Um, PTSD has uh, responded to treatments such as cognitive behavioral therapy uh, to help people uh, reduce the impact of the trauma. Uh, somewhat more controversial but often successful is exposure therapy where uh, people are purposely are supposed to flood themselves with thoughts of uh, the traumatic incident and then uh, are coached in how to deal with the anxiety this arouses. Uh, it's, I say it's somewhat controversial because it's used in uh, veteran administration's PTSD clinics uh, with mixed feedback from the veterans who participate in the treatment. And recent studies have shown that mindfulness meditation has been effective in the treatment of PTSD. Finally, there are also medications to address the nightmares, and I'm pointedly not talking about sleeping pills, absolutely not, um, and not antidepressants either. Uh, there are a few miscellaneous medications, um, not normally thought of as uh, medications that would affect any kind of sleep disorder, that have been found to be helpful for treating nightmares in PTSD sufferers. Prazosine, which is usually uh, used to treat high blood pressure, has been helpful in several VA studies. And also a couple of anticonvulsants that are used to treat either chronic pain or migraine, like Topamax or Neurontin, uh, have been found to be helpful. So we have a number of ways, therapeutically as well as pharmacologically, of addressing uh, the nightmares in PTSD sufferers, and that is very important. Now we know that doing that will save lives. All right, we're going to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more mental health-related news after that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? 
Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your source for all mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, people with a rage disorder are twice as likely to have latent toxoplasmosis parasite infection. Now, this is a very interesting article on a number of different levels. Uh, Let's first talk about intermittent explosive disorder. Um, That's something that not a lot of people have heard of and probably don't know a lot about. Um, Sounds kind of odd, admittedly. Uh, But in a way, it's actually one of the most descriptive diagnoses we have in psychiatry. It is exactly what it sounds like, that uh, intermittently people become explosive uh, with anger or rage, to be specific. Now, you might think, wow, really? There's a separate diagnosis just for that? I mean, don't people with a lot of mental health problems sometimes get that way? Well, the answer is yes, they do, but there are differences. Um, Someone with intermittent explosive disorder is not depressed um, uh, in between episodes, or uh, the depression doesn't bring on the episode of anger. So they don't have major depressive disorder or other mood disorders. They're not manic either. Okay, so they're... While mania 
as in bipolar disorder, can sometimes entail rage instead of uh, euphoria or happiness. Uh, they're not having huge mood swings uh, in both directions, so they can't be bipolar in that case because uh, bipolar you have to have extreme highs and extreme lows. And uh, with intermittent explosive disorder, you don't have that. You just have these bouts of anger and rage, period. And likewise, it's not anxiety that's driving these people to get that way with uh, extreme severe anxiety in generalized anxiety disorder. You can have irritability, but not to this extreme. And again, these people are not worrying or having panic attacks or obsessive compulsive symptoms or post-traumatic stress symptoms or any of that. So basically what you have left over, if you exclude all those other things, is, yes, intermittent explosive disorder. Now, um, individuals with this are more than twice as likely to have been exposed to a common parasite than healthy individuals with no psychiatric diagnoses. In a study involving 358 adult subjects, a team led by researchers from the University of Chicago found that toxoplasmosis, a relatively harmless parasitic infection carried by an estimated 30% of all humans, is associated with intermittent explosive disorder and increased aggression. Findings were published in the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry on the March 23rd issue. <clears throat> now, a latent infection with toxoplasmosis um, may change the brain chemistry in a fashion that increases the risk of aggressive behavior. However, we don't know if this relationship is causal and not everyone that tests positive for toxoplasmosis will have aggression issues, clearly. So additional studies on this issue are needed. Um, <clears throat> intermittent explosive disorder, the article goes on to say, is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, otherwise known as DSM-5, as recurrent impulsive, problematic outbursts of verbal or physical aggression that are disproportionate to the situations that trigger them. Intermittent explosive disorder is thought to affect as many as 16 million Americans, more than bipolar disorder and schizophrenia combined. And um, as I said to you in terms of introducing the topic, uh, that diagnosis excludes the possibility that the episodes of verbal or physical aggression may be attributable to any other illness, whether that be depression, bipolar, anxiety, or schizophrenia. Now, as part of their research to improve diagnosis and treatment for intermittent explosive disorder and impulsive aggression in general, researchers examined possible connections to toxoplasmosis, an extremely common parasitic infection. Transmitted through the feces of infected cats or undercooked meat or contaminated water, 
Toxoplasmosis is typically latent and harmless for healthy adults. However, it is known to reside in brain tissue and has been linked to several psychiatric diseases, including schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and suicidal behavior in general. The research team recruited 358 adult subjects from the United States who were evaluated for intermittent explosive disorder, personality disorders, depression, and other psychiatric disorders. Study participants were also scored on traits including anger, aggression, and impulsivity. Participants fell into one of three groups. Roughly one-third had intermittent explosive disorder. One-third were healthy controls with no psychiatric history. The remaining third were individuals diagnosed with some psychiatric disorder, but not intermittent explosive disorder. This last group served as a control to distinguish intermittent explosive disorder from possible confounding psychiatric factors. The research team found that intermittent explosive disorder diagnosed group was more than twice as likely to test positive for toxoplasmosis exposure, 22%, as measured by a blood test compared to the healthy control group where only 9% tested positive. Around 16% of the psychiatric control group tested positive for toxoplasmosis, but had similar aggression and impulsivity scores to the healthy control group. Intermittent explosive disorder diagnosed subjects scored much higher on both measures than either control group. Across all study subjects, toxoplasmosis-positive individuals scored significantly higher on scores of anger and aggression. The team noted a link between toxoplasmosis and increased impulsivity, but when adjusted for aggression scores, this link became non-significant. This finding suggests toxoplasmosis and aggression are most strongly correlated. However, the authors caution that the study results do not address whether toxoplasmosis infection may cause increased aggression or intermittent explosive disorder. Correlation is not causation, and this is definitely not a sign that people should get rid of their cats. We don't yet understand the mechanisms involved. It could be an increased inflammatory response to the infection, a direct brain modulation by the parasite, or even reverse causation where aggressive individuals tend to have more cats or eat more undercooked meat. Sorry, but those latter two possibilities seem quite unlikely to me. The study does signal the need for more research and more evidence in humans. Uh, researchers are now further examining the relationship between toxoplasmosis, aggression, and intermittent explosive disorder. If better understood, this connection may inform new strategies to diagnose or treat intermittent explosive disorder in the future. 
It will take experimental studies to see if treating a latent toxoplasmosis infection with medication reduces aggressiveness. It could provide a rationale to treat intermittent explosive disorder in toxoplasmosis positive patients by first treating the latent infection. Well, very interesting idea here. And again, like they mentioned in the article, this is not the first time this parasite has been associated with a psychiatric illness. There have been previous research studies showing a link to, um, to schizophrenia. But again, it's only an association that you find uh, more antibodies showing a latent infection, uh, not showing that, oh, okay, well, the infection caused the mental illness. Uh, we don't know enough about the links. Clearly, it needs more study, but it bears more examining. Um, you know, and the idea of some sort of uh, infectious agent changing behavior is certainly not unheard of. Um, some fungal and other types of infections uh, can be uh, can result rather in extreme changes in behavior and mood swings, and just the whole idea of an infectious agent causing mental illness. Uh, shouldn't come as a big surprise either. This reminds me of how uh, decades ago a physician scientist uh, proposed uh, his conclusions that uh, ulcers were not caused by eating spicy food or too much gastric acid or stress, but in fact they were caused by a bacterium, Helicobacterium uh, pylori. And H. pylori is now the standard of care in terms of diagnosing and treating ulcers, whereas when the scientist first proposed this, uh, he was uh, laughed at. Uh, he was a laughing stock, and he was uh, thought to be um, you know, not mentally well himself. But this is now the standard of care. And in fact, I think you know we know a lot of other infectious agents may increase the risk of mental illnesses, there are a lot of studies that show the connection between children developing schizophrenia if uh, their mothers had certain viral infections while they were in the womb. Uh, so I think it's important that this issue is being studied, and uh, it also could be that there's a combination of a genetic vulnerability to the illness and the infection that can cause the illness. Clearly not everyone who's infected with these agents develops uh, these illnesses. Well, that's going to have to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and hope you found it informative. And above all else, hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we meet again next week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.